Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and today we're going to be talking about the 1949 British film noir classic, The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed, a legendary British director. And you know what's fascinating about this film? Well, there's so many things, as we're going to talk about here in this episode. But one of the most interesting things about this film is I think most of us probably think about it erroneously, if we think about it at all. One of the big misconceptions about this film is that it was directed by Orson Welles. That's one common misperception. Another common misperception is that the film stars Orson Welles. And if you think about the film, if you haven't seen it in 20 or 30 years, the first thing you probably think of when you think about the film, regardless of whether you know who directed it or not, is you probably think of Orson Welles. And what's fascinating about that is Welles occupies by far the least amount of screen time of any of the actors who appear in the film. And he really only has three scenes, which is remarkable considering how outsized his attachment to the film has become over the years. So we want to talk a little bit about that as we get into the episode. Another thing I find fascinating about this film is, in a way, the film is the star, not the director, not the actors, not even Orson Welles. The film is the sum of its parts. And as a piece of emotionally and intellectually engaging art, it is superlative. It is a perfect film. It's one of those handful of films you can point to and say, this is a perfect film. In fact, in one of the commentaries on this film that's available on Criterion, uh, Steven Soderbergh and his um, longtime screenwriter, Scott Frank, do a commentary on Criterion, which is well worth listening to. Soderbergh seems to have absorbed all of the material that I absorbed. And it it was an interesting listen because I could kind of hear in his his perfectly kind of informed uh, commentary track a lot of the research that I put into or try to put into episodes. He says a couple of interesting things about this film that I will get into as we go along. One of the things that he says is it's a perfect film. Now, what I was talking about when I'm saying that the film itself is the star, well, it's not a film where you think of the lead performance as the thing. In fact, the lead performance in The Third Man is by the American actor Joseph Cotton. And the supporting performance is split amongst several actors, um, many of whom will be familiar to you if you are a fan of films of the 40s. Uh, Alida Valley plays Anna Schmidt, who is the I wouldn't say she's the romantic interest of the film because she really has no romantic interest in Holly Martins, who's the character played by Joseph Cotton. But she's the girlfriend of Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, who, as I said, doesn't show up until the very final third of the film at best. And Trevor Howard, I would say, is the other big star of the film, although he's in what would be the supporting actor role 
And there's a, just an, an amazing cast of characters from Wilfred Hyde White, who plays Crabbin, to Bernard Lee, the future M from James Bond films, plays Sergeant Payne in a great comedic role. And so the film, like Joseph Cotton, who's great, but he, you wouldn't think of him as the star of the film in a way. And that's because he fits into the film. He's a piece of the film, just like the amazing zither score that we'll talk about. The amazing cinematography by Robert Krasker, the Australian cinematographer who worked with Carol Reed on numerous films. The canted angles of so many frames, the tilted shots, the expressionism, the noir shadings. And of course, Wells, who turns in an incredible film performance. One of the things that um, that Reed said in approaching the film, which I thought was very smart, I'm going to read this. There are two really, really great books about the making of The Third Man, which I recommend. The biggest one is called In Search of the Third Man. It's by Charles Drazen. It is an indispensable guide to the film, and it feels very smartly researched. The other one is a great read, much shorter. It's from the BFI Film Classics Library. It's called The Third Man by Rob White. Those are both essential if you want to go down this rabbit hole, as I did, of The Third Man. One of the things that Carol Reed said in the beginning, he said, we may have to make a comedy thriller. The great advantage of the comedy thriller, he explained, was that you're not walking a tightrope. You miss some of the laughs, you miss some of the thrills, but hopefully there's something. And I thought that was so smart. Um, he also mentioned that Hitchcock himself stayed out of trouble making films by doing this all the time. So in other words, if you think of that blend of comedy and action and thriller that you have in some of the more famous Hitchcock films, you have that as well here in The Third Man. So you don't have to ensure that there's a laugh every you know, 32.7 seconds on screen like you do in a comedy. And you don't have to keep the action going in a thriller. You can have a mix of both. And that contributes to this brilliantly doomed sense that hangs over the film. And part of that stems from the post-war era that we're talking about here. That's kind of one of the things I seized on when I was getting into the film. I mean, not only is the film shot in this uh, bombed about a bit as the brilliant uh, voiceover from the director, Carol Reed, by the way, which starts the film. I'll play that. Um, given that it's shot partially on location in Vienna, you are just a few years from the end of World War II, and you can feel that. And you can feel that in the filmmakers and in the screenwriter, Graham Greene, the great novelist. You can feel that in how there and we all as various societies were coming to terms with the new reality post-war. Uh, here's how the film opens with this great voiceover by the director, Carol Reed. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. We'd run anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Of course, a situation like that does tempt amateurs, but, well, they, you know, they can't stay the course like a professional. 
Now, the city, it's divided into four zones, you know, each occupied by a power, the American, the British, the Russian, and the French. But the center of the city, that's international, policed by an international patrol, one member of each of the four powers. Wonderful. What a hope they had, all strangers to the place, and none of them could speak the same language, except a sort of smattering of German. Good fellows on the whole did their best, you know. Vienna doesn't really look any worse than a lot of other European cities. Bombed about a bit. Oh, I was going to tell you, wait, I was going to tell you about Harley Martins, an American, came all the way here to visit a friend of his. The name was Lime, Harry Lime. Now, Martins was broke and Lime had offered him some sort, I don't know, some sort of a job. Anyway, there he was, poor chap. Happy as a lark and without a cent. Now, what's great about that is it's such a concise intro to so many things that are going on in the film. And what I love most about it is the way in which it's written and the way in which it's performed by the director, Carol Reed. It has a looseness. It's not perfect. There's a conversational tone to it, which is really cool, I think, and which sets the tone for the film that you're about to watch. I think normally I'm not really a big fan of sort of bookends or signposts or here's what we're about to do in this film. But I think it's necessary here, and it sets up the unique location where you have these four different nationalities that are policing the area. And the documentary-style footage which is used over that voiceover is, is brilliant, and it goes with the sort of droll, deadpan wit that you're going to be exposed to throughout the film. Now, one of the stories that's pertinent to The Third Man is that there was this kind of brilliant tension between the two main producers of the film. In the United States, you had David O. Selznick, who, to hear Soderbergh tell it on the commentary and to read Charles Drazen's book, was in the midst of this period of his life where he was apparently fairly well known for taking a lot of speed and basically being out of his mind. <laughs> and then on the British side, you have the very erudite Alexander Corda, this sort of uh, society figure. There's this brilliant sequence in one of the making of features that you can see on the Criterion channel that shows you Alexander Corda's office. And it could be the office of the chancellor of the exchequer in the British government. I mean, it is just has these floor to ceiling uh, windows that look out um, onto a wooded portion of London. It has the most amazing furniture and the desk and it's sort of a civilized workplace. And you have this tension between these two producers. And then you have this cat and mouse game that's going on between Participants such as Carol Reed, the director, Corda, the British producer, Selznick, the American producer, the elusive Orson Welles, who is traveling from nation to nation, city to city, uh, in order to elude showing up when he is supposed to on the film set. You have, between Reed, Corda, and Selznick, three different ideas of what the film is and should be, and you have them jockeying each other and engaging in various producer or directorial uh, shenanigans in order to get their own way. One of the things that Selznick insisted upon, which caused a big furor at the time, was that he did not like using the British-accented opening that I just played you. 
He wanted the opening to be in the voice of Joseph Cotton, and he didn't want it to be at a remove from the story, which you will pointedly have heard it is in the Carol Reed version. He's telling, you don't know who this person is in the voiceover. He's, oh, oh, let me tell you, I was going to tell you about this chap named Holly Martins. Well, here's the opening that Selznick wrote and insisted upon. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour, and its easy charm. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. They could get anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Of course, the situation like that does tempt actors. Well, of course, they don't last long, not really, not like professionals. Now, the city's divided into four zones, you know, American, British, Russian, and the French. But the center of the city, that's international, policed by an international patrol, one member of each of the four powers. Wonderful, you can imagine what a chance they had, all of them strangers to the place and no two of them speaking the same language. And they were good fellows on the whole and did their best. Vienna doesn't look any worse than a lot of other European cities, bombed a little, of course. Anyway, I was dead broke when I got to Vienna. A close pal of mine had wired me offering me a job doing publicity work for some kind of charity he was running. I'm a writer, name's Martins, Holly Martin. Anyway, down I came all the way to old Vienna, happy as a lark and without a dime. Passport, please. Now, you might hear that without really paying super close attention to it and think, ah, that sounds exactly like what you just played from Kale Reed. But what, what, there's so many key differences here. And, and what's fascinating is the differences to my ear are the differences between, unfortunately, the typically dumbed down American approach to most every form of entertainment and the more cerebral, smarter British approach. For one thing, as you watch the film from that point forward, well, the character of Holly Martins has no reason to be all-knowing in the way he just is in that little one-minute, 16-second synopsis, because Holly Martins has no idea where he is. He's never been to Vienna. He has no idea what's going on. He doesn't even know of a black market. He's about to learn that over the course of the film. So the idea that this character is, even in a film noir sense, telling us a thing that's about to happen in a crime film, which is a trope, I will give you that, of a detective feature, like I'm going to tell you about a case that I recently had, okay, but it completely thwarts the idea of the character. And it just doesn't have the insouciance and the wit and the aplomb of the British version. And so luckily now when you watch the film, you will hear the Carol Reed original version, which I think we can all be thankful for. Um, <laughs> and as I said, in that post-war uh, era that we're in, that's one of the brilliant things about the film. And... I'm kind of falling a bit into a rabbit hole of films of the 40s, Hollywood films of the 40s, British films of the 40s. You know, I've seen a lot of these, but I'm starting to get into watching them serially. And Turner Classic Movies is the, the main place where, you know, if I'm in my office, I'll just put that on in the background and you, you know, right now they're playing Rebecca, the great uh, Hitchcock film, and also interestingly, a David O. Selznick production. And some of the Selznick stuff is so apparent in the in the open to Rebecca. It starts with David O. Selznick's name. It starts with the image of his uh, studio location 
which is, I think, Pickfair. I think it's the famous Douglas Fairbanks house uh, that I believe is also used in some Columbo episodes. And it sells it on the top, like right above the columns on the front of this massive mansion. It says David O. Selznick Studios or something like that. So that kind of tells you the ego of the producer, the ego of Selznick is sort of completely <laughs> on display there. But this is very much a British film and it's very much a post-war film. And it's very much a film of Vienna. And even though some of the film was filmed on stages in England, the location work that took place in Vienna is essential to the vibe of the film. And it is why the music is present in the film, which we're going to talk about. The film was shot by Robert Krasker, who's a great cinematographer, worked with Carol Reed on a number of uh, iconic Carol Reed films. There's a three-film sequence here, Odd Man Out in 1947, uh, which is a brilliant film noir starring James Mason about uh, a nationalist Irish criminal and uh, revolutionary who is trying to evade capture in the wake of a botched robbery. That is an incredible film, also shot by Robert Krasker. And The Fallen Idol, which I also watched as part of the prep for this, is another film, I believe, written by Graham Greene and based on a short story that Graham Greene wrote called The Basement Room. This is a clever, twisty, brilliant little thriller starring... Uh, Ralph Richardson is a fascinating actor, and it's about a little boy who's the son of a diplomat whose parents are never home, who idolizes um, this uh, butler, played by Ralph Richardson, who's, who's, who is not in love with his wife, and she is not in love with him, but he is in love with someone else, and it's sort of a, a brilliant film about the lies we tell and how the simple admonition to always tell the truth is not really appropriate or applicable in every situation in human life. And the film does a brilliant job, The Fallen Idol, of kind of showing that there are times for the truth and there are times for little white lies. And then, of course, The Third Man. These are three films that came out in three successive years, from 1947, 1948 for Fallen Idol, and The Third Man in 1949. You'd be very hard-pressed to find many directors who really have three perfect films like that in a row. Films of their era, but timeless films that you can still watch today and have full appreciation for the craft of the filmmaking that is displayed on screen. Krasker, as I mentioned, the Australian cinematographer, is I think the only person to receive an Academy Award for The Third Man. Um, I don't believe, not sure it got any other nominations. Let me see. Academy Awards. No, it did get, I'm sorry. Carol Reed was nominated for Best Director. Robert Krasker was nominated for Best Cinematography. And Oswald Hoffenrichter was nominated for Best Film Editing. But of those three, only Krasker won. Hoffenrichter is going to have some good anecdotes as we get into talking about the brilliant score. One of the things that came up when I was doing some research here was, I think actually if you look up Krasker or you look up 
the third man. It says something, it, it ascribes to Krasker's cinematography in the third man the phrase neo-expressionism. Well, I think that's actually wrong. Because if I looked into it, neo-expressionism seems to have emerged in the 70s, not in the 40s. And I think what Krasker is doing here is expressionism, which is, to quote its Wikipedia page, uh, its typical trait is to present the world solely from a subjective perspective, distorting it radically for emotional effect in order to evoke moods or ideas. Expressionist artists have sought to express the meaning of emotional experience rather than physical reality. So for example, Edvard Munch's The Scream is an example of expressionism. And this is, this is a movement that I believe stems from the period kind of roughly before World War I uh, through the two world wars and, and then afterwards before it may get into other forms of modernism. So I don't know. That's an esoteric corrective, but it just struck me the wrong way there. So Graham Greene, I mentioned, who for me, two of my favorite novelists would be Graham Greene and John le Carre, who are very similar to me in that they both paint this beautifully sad, realistic version of our world with doomed type characters who do not get everything they seek. And they also tend to write stories that start with characters who don't end up being the primary character that we're going to follow, which I think is such a nifty and neat trick. A lot of Le Carre novels, if you go back and read them, start this way. And it's kind of a form of misdirection, and it's a way of allowing your main character to have this entrance. And of course, in a novel, you don't get that sense of a filmic entrance that you do here so brilliantly used when Orson Welles finally appears on screen. But it's a really stunning effect when done well in the books of both Graham Greene and John Le Carre, who are writing in different eras, but share a lot of similarities. And I think all of their works are really, really worth jumping into. And Graham Greene and, and Carol Reed had this, this great little filmic relationship sorted out through Alexander Korda, the producer who kind of put them together. And I wonder if one of the reasons why The Third Man is so great is because after the idea was sprung, and of course, it's hard in the aftermath of the success of things like this to say whose idea this film originally was. Was it Carol Reed's idea? Essentially, however it happened, Graham Greene was sent to Vienna to find a story and was introduced to the concept of the black market by a newspaper reporter and was shown around to some of the underground locations that the emigres uh, populated by a, a kind of a fixer that was placed in uh, his, his path. Uh, it was a woman named Elizabeth Montague. I guess she was an actress originally, but she gave Green a tour of Vienna, showed him the sewers and some of its less reputable nightclubs. She also introduced him to a gentleman named Peter Smolka. He was the European con correspondent for the Times of London. 
And it was Smolka who apparently told Green about the existence of this black market in Vienna. And uh, what he did was he, he wrote a small, short novel, a novella, rather than a screenplay to start. He never intended that to be available, although they, of course, did publish it uh, once the film became super successful. So the this relationship between Carol Reed and Graham Greene had this fertile ground between this film and Fallen Idol, and the Vienna location would prove to be so significant because this atmosphere, this post-war atmosphere, the bombed out, bombed about nature of parts of the city, you just can't recreate that. When you have films that have actual ruin, um, I think of when uh, Kubrick did his Vietnam uh, war film and you know, famously the Vietnam scenes were, were shot around this disused British factory that had been blown up or, uh, or that Kubrick was allowed to blow up. And it gave it a very unique look compared to other Vietnam films. And although it was somewhat stylized and Kubrickian, there's something about rubble you just can't really uh, replace. And this vibe of Vienna, this post-war era, the cynicism, right? If you think about the World War II era, where certainly in England and in the United States and in the people who were on you know, the right side of that war, those times were suffused with a lot of this patriotism and gung-ho spirit. Uh, keep calm and carry on. You know, stiff upper lip, um, facing adversity. Well, the post-war era is the beginning of counterculture in some ways because the cynicism that creeps back into society's post-war which is, well, now what, right? What nations don't do well after a war is fix everything up again and making a living and sorting out the political and the personal realities is the messy part. And that's where this film is set. It's set in the messy aftermath where people are jockeying for authority and nationalities are jockeying for authority and the people of the actual uh, country or Austrians, let's say, are, are not welcome in places in Vienna. And so this is, the, this is the backdrop in the setting. And key to all of this, and the thing that would be the biggest, maybe the biggest happy accident in the history of cinema, is how this incredible score, a single instrument score, performed by a weird instrument you've probably never seen in person, a zither, which is a 42-stringed guitar-like instrument, came to be the defining sound of this film. And perhaps the most famous film score of all time. here, there's one hand is playing this bass line, and then the other hand is playing that melody, 
and it has a slightly out-of-tune vibe to it. of notes. <laughs> They're comedic. And they absolutely represent part of what we're going to see on screen. And it's so iconic that it's actually uh, the, the whole credit sequence of the film is just an image of the theme being played on a zither in a close-up. And all of the credits are taking place on top of it. So one of the great stories about the film is how this music came to be in the film, which, as I said, is one of those happy accidents. And what, what happened, as best as I can tell from the source material, from Drazen's book, which I think is the most authoritative book on the subject of the film, um, there's a couple of different versions of this story, as there ever are, and there are different people taking credit for it. But basically, what happened was when... Uh, the film company arrived in Vienna. There was a reception held in their honor. So Reed first heard this zither music at reception for the film's crew in Vienna. And originally he was taken by it and he called the facility that had had the reception to try and inquire as to who was the zither player that performed last night. And the woman who answered the phone said something comical like, one doesn't know the name of the zither player. He simply comes with the goblets and the saucers and the plates. So it took some work to track down this man named Anton Karras, who showed up the following day at Reed's hotel room with his zither and began playing... Uh, some songs of the day for Reed. And then Reed kept pressing him to, I guess, play something a little more authentically uh, Viennese or Austrian. And Anton Karras began playing what you just heard, what became known as the Harry Lime theme. And originally he had planned to just use this in one or two places and he had planned to do a more traditional orchestral score for the film's many chase sequences. And they recorded, you know, hours of Karis playing. And while they were assembling the film, it was reportedly the film's editor, the aforementioned and brilliantly named Oswald Hafenrichter, who was an Austrian himself. He also famously cried upon hearing the zither music played by Anton Karras for the first time. It was Hafenrichter who nudged Carol Reed into using only the zither music. And he did this by means of one of the most tried and true tricks of the producing trade. He heard Reed's decision to only use the zither music during the famous meeting between Holly Martins and Harry Lyme at the Ferris wheel at the end of the film. That's where Reed anticipated only using this music. 
Hoffenrechter listened to this, and he's brilliantly described by someone else on the film set as both obstinate and a coward, which is a great quality to have in a film editor, by the way. You know, uh, you don't need confrontation because that's not going to get your way. So the coward portion, or more charitably, a lack of a confrontational spirit portion, is useful because rather than trying to tell Carol Reed he's wrong and this is what should be done, the obstinate part of his personality is actually more appropriate because that part of the personality went ahead and did what he, Hafenrichter, thought should be done. And in one crucial editing moment, he had the music, the Harry's theme music, laid quietly across the very final sequence of the film, which is one of the most famous sequences in this film or in any film. It's when Holly Martins watches Anna walk past him after the final funeral of Harry Lyme, and she doesn't glance at him, and she continues walking down the street, and it's held for a very long time before the era. And he put that music in against the wishes of Carol Reed, and then during the moment when that was screened for the film company, I'm going to quote Charles Drazen's essential book here. It says, quote, the film was run and the final sequence played. The lights went up to silence, recalled David Eady, an editing assistant on the film. And Carol Reed turned and said to Oswald, you know, Ossie, I've been thinking it might be a good idea to use this tune whenever Harry Lyme is on the screen. And so Oswald Hafenrichter is at least partially responsible for this brilliant single instrument score. I can't think of another single instrument score. Granted, I didn't Google single instrument film scores, but I'm willing to bet you don't have any off the top of your head either. Maybe piano, if you consider that a single instrument score, but it's certainly the weirdest choice of a score for the time that in retrospect, you could not think of anything more iconic. And the score sold something, I want to say like 40 million copies after the film came out. It became a phenomena. In fact, if you watched the recent brilliant Beatles documentary, Get Back, which I did an episode about on the pod, if you haven't heard it, go look for it. They did, in the Get Back sessions, busted out a brief version of this theme. Just got a bell. So that's how iconic this was that, uh, you know, maybe less than 20 years later, the Beatles are still playing it. There's another great excerpt I want to read you here from Drazen's book because he says things better than I ever could. He says, quote, 50 years on, it's become such a treasured part of film history that it's hard to appreciate how harebrained Reed's decision must have seemed then. 
The 40s were the great age of the orchestral film score. The big pictures, almost as a matter of course, had scores by the leading composers of the day, Walton, Vaughn Williams, Alwyn, Adinsel. To suggest using a zither, whatever that might be, was like Steven Spielberg telling John Williams not to bother turning up and hiring instead a man man he'd met on the beach. And that's really how obscure Anton Karas was prior to being plucked into having his music, his original music, used all throughout this film and used in a variety of emotional uh, tones. That's what's kind of really cool about it. I wanted to play you this little section of the commentary track where Steven Soderbergh and Scott Frank are talking about the score because I thought they had some interesting points to make. This is Soderbergh. We're about to go into another chase sequence. They had just, and we're going to end up with another, another uh, sort of betrayal by nature with the bird upstairs. Right. What they're referring to here, if I could just pause for a second, is there's there's a couple of great themes that run throughout the film. One is betrayal by nature. Animals. So you have a kitten that betrays Harry Lyme by mewling and uh, alerting Holly Martins to Lyme's presence in the brilliant revelation scene that Harry Lyme is alive. When Holly Martins is about to run upstairs and try and escape these Gestapo-like thugs in Vienna, he enters a darkened room and there's a strange sound and it turns out to be a parrot who nips him on the hand and thus gives him away to his pursuers. And then there's a scene earlier in the film where returning to the scene of the crime where Harry Lyme was apparently killed in an automobile or run over by an automobile, uh, the porter who had been giving Holly information is is dead. And there's a there's a dog. I think the dog is barking uh, at him and there's a little child. So child and pets give away several of the key moments here. So that's what he's referring to. The sort of clarions of uh, danger, children and dogs and right. cats people and who birds. Don't, people yeah. who don't know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great conceit. That's a nice shot there. But again, it you know, this is, that's a, that's a little bit of a scene and we've seen a lot of them where the quality, the tonal quality that the, that the zither brings is just so. Well, it ties it together. It's so unique. Well, what's interesting about it to me is it's, it's, it's obviously it's contemporary. It's in, it, it's a contemporary film. It's set in the present. Um, and yet the, the music immediately i don't know i don't know how it's possible how they did this it's contemporary and nostalgic at the same time exactly yeah and i think that's a really tricky thing to pull off it and, also has this it also has this element of sort of you know it's a virtuoso performance at the same time there's something hinky about it there's something out of tune and innocent about it at the same time it has it, it has it's a very complicated it also ties all these things together. If you were going to do any other kind of score, if you were going to if you were going to invade the zither at all with any other thing, you'd be tempted in these chase sequences to put it in here. And this ties the rest of the film. You know what I mean? This this would be the once you invaded once you invaded that the track, you'd be ruined. Yeah. 
I love that. If you geek out about that kind of thing, you are home here on this podcast. Because to me, that speaks to what you have to think about when you're choosing music for films like this. And the bravery of this choice is summed up in everything that you just heard. Now, of course, there was a fight over the music, of course, because... Um, you would not expect everyone to be immediately on board. I'm just looking for some of the good quotes here because someone screened the film and said to uh, either Corda or Reed, uh, oh, here you go. This is also from Drazen's book, quote, when shortly afterwards, the chairman of British Lion, that's the, the company that uh, was making and distributing the film, Sir Arthur Jarrett saw the film. He sent Reed a telegram. Dear Carol, saw the third man last night. Love it. I think you've got a big success there. But please take off the banjo. Reed showed Guy Hamilton the telegram. Now, Guy Hamilton was Reed's assistant director on the film, and you may remember the name because Guy Hamilton would go on to direct, I think, three or four James Bond films in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. Reed showed Guy Hamilton the telegram, continuing here, quote, they don't know a fucking thing, end quote. He said, with disgust at the breed of distributors that Sir Arthur Jarrett represented. He screwed up the piece of paper and threw it on the floor. Hamilton retrieved the telegram, smoothed it out, and 18 months later, when both the film and the music had achieved their colossal success, used it to blackmail Jarrett into giving him his first directing job. That's a story that almost sounds too good to be true. However, let's hope that it is. Let's go with that story. As I said, after the film came out, the film was so phenomenally successful that this, this soundtrack, which wasn't even going to be released, was hastily pressed. And by the end of November, the year the film was released, it had sold half a million copies, which is incredible. This is, there weren't even record charts. So the only thing that you could use to understand how popular something was, was the sheet music sale. Now, in one of the great moments here that allows you to truly enjoy this whole story. With that sheet music sale, which in this period of the music business, that's where you made the money, selling the sheet music, right? Now, with the 500,000 copies sold of the soundtrack, well, Anton Karras wasn't entitled to any of that money based on the contract that he had signed with Corda's London Film Productions. And it can quote directly from his contract here, which Drazen does. It says, quote, we will employ you to act as a zither player, to play the zither, and to provide the music to be played by you on the zither, zither dated 27 May 1949. And it contained a waiver of copyright clause of the kind that screenwriters of the time were routinely required to sign. And Drazen says this wasn't necessarily exploitation of Karras, as the film industry would certainly go on to learn how to do later. 
it was really just this time frame that you're in where where music sales contain relative to a film's soundtrack uh, were not something that people thought of had to be accounted for in the contracts. Now, to Alexander Korda and London Film Productions' great, great integrity, they willfully entered into a new agreement with Karras, which gave him 50% of the receipts garnered from the sale of his music and his soundtrack, which is incredible to think about how easily they could have not done that and how, if this was Hollywood in the 80s, they certainly would have relied on the contract and, you know, maybe sent the guy a Lamborghini or something or, you know, certainly not entitled him to what he was entitled to. And Anton Karras, it's a good little story because here's this here's this guy who is, you know, struggling to make a living in post-war Vienna and is literally plucked from obscurity and ends up contributing the most famous film soundtrack of all time, for all intents and purposes, certainly until we get to iconic film scores of later areas in Hollywood and in British filmmaking. But I mean, what was he doing? Um, He was playing the zither at cocktail parties and at places that were releasing the current wine uh, vintage. And uh, this little man and his zither um, made it work for him. Uh, He opened his own club eventually in 1954 and became a tourist attraction. And he did that for a while, but it really wasn't for him. And eventually um, he, I believe retreated from the limelight, maybe even retired, although he did do some tours uh, of Japan in 62, 69, 72. Um, He performed the theme at Carol Reed's funeral, although he would, I guess later in his life, he, he, he did not perform it as much as you might think, but he did perform it movingly, it said, for Carol Reed's funeral. And the first few bars of the theme, the third man theme, Harry Lyme's theme, are engraved on his grave marker in Vienna in musical notation. It's it's a good story. You can feel good about it. And you can't say enough about how much the song and this this instrument, well, I guess the dog, the dog can say something about it. You can't say enough about how important this music is to the film. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the stars of the film, as I said. I've been reading a brilliant book. It's called City of Nets by Otto Friedrich, who lived from 1929 to 1995. And City of Nets is this fascinating book about Hollywood in the 1940s. Here's the blurb. This dazzling story of Hollywood during the decade of its greatest success is a social and cultural history of the movie capital's golden age. 
Its cast includes actors, writers, musicians, and composers, producers and directors, racketeers and labor leaders, journalists, politicians, all in the turbulent decade from World War II to Korea. And what's great about it is that Friedrich has such a great eye for just the right telling bio and, and personal story or anecdote about a given one of those people in Hollywood which gives you this, this really interesting, complete picture. It's akin to another of my favorite books that I mention all the time here, Craig Brown's um, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret or his Glimpses of the Beatles book, similar in style. I love books like that because, again, much like the Third Man film itself, the parts here cre- contribute to a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. And this book is what really got me thinking a lot about this particular era of Hollywood. And as he says, it is the decade of its greatest success in many ways. It's um, an industry that is, you know, 20, 30 years into this era of talking cinema and this era of film idols and stars is has reached this robust maturity and it's all happening just before the things that would happen in the fifties and the sixties to change cinema. So it's a very specific time and the films of this time I think are so fascinating because of how they both reflect out of necessity because you have things like codes and boards that are making sure that film scripts are approved and there's a lot of censorship. There's the indentured servitude of the studio system. Actors are signed to seven-year contracts. They have no choice over what films they work on. Same for directors. Um, And you have this kind of fascinating labor history playing out at the same time. So in reading City of Nets, it's such a great uh, introduction to this period And some of the great actors and the directors, you have a real appreciation for the craft of cinema at this time. And The Third Man kind of represents all of that in one place because you have great stars um, of the sort of Trevor Howard, who's, you know, just one of those iconic British film stars of the era. And Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, you know, both representing different aspects of the same thing. So that's that's all amazing. So as I said... You know, you have Joseph Cotton and you have Trevor Howard in some of these great, great scenes. It's a shame. What? Him dying like that. Best thing that ever happened to him. That's Trevor Howard. What are you trying to say? He was about the worst racketeer that ever made a dirty living in this city. Policeman, huh? Come on. Have another drink. I never did like policemen. I have to call them sheriff. Ever seen one? Pin it on a dead man. Some... Petty racket with gasoline or something. Just like a cop. Your real cop, I suppose. It wasn't petrol. So it wasn't petrol. So it was tires or saccharine. Uh, why don't you catch a few murderers for a change? Well, you could say that murder was part of his racket. It's all right, Payne. He's only a scribbler with too much drink in him. Take Mr. Holly Martin's home. Holly? Now... <laughs> He's only a scribbler with too much drink in him is Graham Greene's self-referential line here. Hey, Martin, sir. The, uh, the writer. 
The author of Death at Double X, Ron. Listen, Callahan. <laughs> Callaway, I'm English, not Irish. If you're not going to... That is the brilliant uh, Bernard Lee, who would play M in so many Bond films. He's, of course, a big fan of Holly Martin's cheesy page-turning pulp novels uh, of the sort that Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is also a fan of. And that's a really funny through line throughout this. But what's interesting when you think about this scene with Holly Martins is basically playing the obstreperous, loudmouth American drunk. In post-war Europe and in post-war filmmaking, and certainly in Hollywood, this is not a flattering representation that David O. Selznick was thrilled about because the hero, so to speak, of this film is not the American. In fact, the American blunders his way through a sequence here. Now, he does uncover the mystery of Harry Lyme to one degree, but he doesn't do it through cunning ingenuity or particular dedication to any cause other than his own selfish interests. And if there's anything like a hero in the film, it's it's really the Trevor Howard character who is the one who has the authority to make things happen for the characters we come to care about. And that would be part of the skirmishing that would go on between Corda and uh, David O. Selznick, which is great. And the female lead, she doesn't have a lot of clips available on YouTube, which is where I usually play these clips for a variety of reasons. Uh, but Alita Valley as Anna Schmidt is great. And this is typical of what I'm coming to appreciate of 40s film performances where it really was an era where the female stars were as big, if not bigger, than the male stars. And the acting and the directing and the, the, the writing for them, you know, obviously runs the gamut of so many different types of things. But she is a brilliant, brilliant screen presence. She's an Italian actress, um, famously Benito Mussolini, the Italian uh, dictator, and fascist called her the most beautiful woman in the world, but don't hold that against her. Um, and she had a lot of success as a film star in post-World War II uh, Hollywood and European cinema. Uh, probably the equal of Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo, although not as well known as those two. But she turns in a great performance. And again, this film avoids cliches. Um, she... There is no romance. Her heart belongs to Harry Lyme, who is proven to care nothing for her. And that's part of what makes this great. It's part of what makes the Holly Martins character not really the lead star of the film. And it contributes, I think, in a way to that idea that I, that I even had, which is thinking that Orson Welles directed this film and thinking that Orson Welles is the star of the film. Because, as I said, he doesn't appear until uh, the final third of the film. And even that's being kind of generous. Um, to, to his eventual appearance, which this appearance is one of the most brilliant. This is the cat you can hear. And the cat has been identified to us by Alita Valley's character as the cat only what likes What kind of a spy Harry. do you think you are, Satchel Foot? 
What are you tailing me for? Cat got your tongue? Come on out. Of course, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He thinks he's just another thug who's following him around and wishes him ill. And also, as viewers, again, we don't know anything about Harry Lyme being alive at this point of the film. We've been to his gravesite. The film doesn't necessarily start at Harry's grave, but pretty close to it. Come out, come out, whoever you are. Step out in the light and let's have a look at you. Who's your boss? Who's your boss? Who's your boss? Who's your boss? Just like that, Harry's gone. I mean, if that's not one of the greatest entrances in the history of cinema, I don't know what <laughs> what is. And again, that use of the theme is so great. And Soderbergh says, um, of the many great things that he says in the film, one of the things that he says about Wells is that, you know, he sort of says, you know, I wasn't really a fan of Wells as an actor. He says something like, I tend to find him to be pretty hammy. And it's, it's, it's one of those statements that you hear and it sounds sort of, um, it sounds sort of purposefully, uh, shit stirring. But when you investigate it a little bit, you kind of understand what he's talking about. And what he's talking about is a lot of Wells's most famous acting roles. Of course, Citizen Kane as, an, as the primary example. Well, a lot of what's great about those performances when you watch the films again, Wells is either usually alone in a scene, declaiming forcefully, carrying forth, holding center frame, or he is as he does in any film that he's in, just through sheer force of personal magnetism, he is sucking all of the energy of the camera to himself. And Rob White, who wrote the BFI film classic book about the third man, says of Wells's performance in it, quote, no matter that he had fun on the third man, not taking it too seriously, Harry Lyme is one of Wells's greatest screen roles. It is astonishing the presence that Wells had from the beginning of his film career, that his larger-than-life, demagogic, mischievous, egotistical personality could so easily be authentic and hypnotic. And that's exactly what we get from Wells in The Third Man. It's authentic and hypnotic. It is stripped of those other aspects that he mentions, yet... They're also present throughout the whole portion of the film where Wells is not on screen because it's all about him. I mean, what more could you want as a lazy actor of the Wells variety, the Marlon Brando variety, people who would come to try actively to do as little as possible to achieve the spoils and the indulgence of the film community than to have a film where the entire film is about you 
and everyone is talking about you is looking for you, thinking about you, and you only have to show up for, I don't know, two or three days of work, and you turn in a performance that would go on to not only identify you with the film to a degree well beyond your screen time, but in fact, would also bleed over into many people thinking that you directed this film. And Wells himself at various points in his life did not dissuade people from thinking that. He certainly did not dissuade people from thinking that he wrote all of his lines. Um, Although one of the most famous speeches we'll talk about in a second, he did contribute to. But as per Soderbergh, when you look at some of these other iconic Wells acting roles, he's either delivering a lecture or a soliloquy, or he's rarely are these moments because of some electric vibe between him and another actor. Um, They are that way between him and Joseph Cotton because they're great friends. They made several films together. Joseph Cotton is in Citizen Kane, of course. But if you take a look at just a few of the iconic Wells performances, a lot of them involve these incredible speeches. I remember. Charles, I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. Now, this hagiographic speech that you're writing for yourself and performing brilliantly for yourself... Of course, it's hard to avoid doing that. But he would be so identified with that sort of a thing that years later, this is from 1956, John Huston's version of Moby Dick, Wells, looking completely different just 10 years later after the fact, is Father Mapple delivering this sermon. And God prepared a great fish from Swallow a boat-like up. pulpit. Brilliant. Shipmates... The sin of Jonah was in his disobedience of the command of God. He found it a hard command. And it was, shipmates, for all the things that God would have us do are hard. If we would obey God, we must disobey ourselves. But Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. Jonah thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign. He prowls among the shipping like a vile burglar hastening to cross the seas. And as he comes aboard, the sailors mark him. The ship puts out. But soon the sea rebels. It will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes up. The ship is like to break. The bosun calls all hands to lighten her. Boxes, bales, and jars are clattering overboard. The wind is shrieking, the men are yelling. I fear the Lord, cries Jonah, the God of heaven who hath made the sea and the dry land. Again, the sailors mark him. And wretched Jonah cries out to him to cast him overboard. For he knew that for his sake this great tempest was upon him. 
Now behold, Jonah, taken up as an anchor and dropped into the sea. Brilliant. And also referred to and called back in the excellent Peter Weir, Russell Crowe film, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, where Crowe also delivers a version of the Jonah sermon. Although a bit less ostentatiously than that. And here's another one from Mr. Arcaden. In Georgian style, Luigi. How did you recognize me? <laughs> I know you. Your glasses are friends. In Georgian toast, the little story always comes first. I had a dream. I found myself in a graveyard where all the tombstones were marked in a curious way. 1822, 1826, 1832 so you can see how as a filmmaker as a film goer you fall in love with and you want this wellesian towering performance because the voice the voice is so incredible right but there are also exceptions as I was looking through these. There's a great scene in his film Chimes at Midnight from 1965 where his greatest acting in the film is when he's being told off by another actor, by Prince Hal. It's a nearly silent performance and it's all in Wells's facial reactions, which is a lot of what goes on in The Third Man. And it's really Wells's subtle, subtle control of his facial responses and and it's not so much the lines that he speaks although he does have this brilliant and very famous cuckoo clock speech from the ferris wheel scene um, which is his longest protracted scene in the film and it's a scene of brilliant acting between cotton and wells i think because of their long-standing friendship and collaborative work together if you listen to this, you'll notice that Wells, um, in the uh, first part of the speech where they're sort of feeling each other out, um, it's a brilliant sequence because you're kind of uncertain whether uh, Harry is going to do harm to Holly. Melodramatic. They're up on this Ferris wheel. Down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. Well, way you can save money nowadays. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. He communicates this threat non-verbally and... I should be pretty easy to get rid of. Pretty easy? Wouldn't be too sure. I carry a gun. Don't think they'd look for a bullet wound after you hit that ground. 
dug up your coffin. And found Harbin? Well, shifts gears here. Pity. <laughs> Holly, what fools we are talking to each other this way, as though I'd do anything to you. Or you to me. You're just a little mixed up about things in general. Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. So have I. I. Used to believe in God. This year, you can hear some of the cynicism of the post-war reality, where people are thinking differently about governments. People are thinking differently because of the deprivations of the wartime era. People like Harry Lyme are out for themselves, and Harry Lyme is a terrible person who does terrible, terrible things. He takes penicillin out of its rightful use, dilutes it, sells it back to people who need it desperately and who die as a result of this scheme of his. Yet, because it's Orson Welles, that's not entirely a cut-and-dried persona here. You still appreciate and <laughs> almost want the charm of Harry Lyme. Not that you want or think that he's going to get away with it, per se, but it's not quite so cut and dry. Anyway, the end of this scene is probably the most famous bit of Wells in the film. And it's the cuckoo clock speech. I you to bring me some of these tablets from home. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see, not the police. Remember that, won't you? <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fellow said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. And there you have like one of the great exits in film history as well. So long, Harry. And he just scoots along the way that he came. Now, this iconic little piece of screenwriting is one of those things that many people uh, speak to as you read some of the source material. But I think that, again, um, you can look to Charles Drazen's book for some authoritative uh, appreciation of how this came to be. And essentially what it looks to have been is there was a relatively well-known for the time uh, printing of a lecture given by James McNeil Whistler. It's called the 10 o'clock lecture. And it was delivered at that time, 10 o'clock on February 20th of 1885. And in part, here is the direct quote from Whistler's 10 o'clock lecture. Whistler said, one would imagine declaimed in a Wellesian aura if he possessed one, because this is pretty purplish and overwritten. 
um, and one could imagine it being declaimed in a Wellesian fashion. He wrote, quote, false is the fabled link between the grandeur of art and the glories and virtues of the state. For art feeds not upon nations, and peoples may be wiped from the face of the earth. But art is a whimsical goddess, and as capricious, her strong sense of joy tolerates no dullness, and live we never so spotlessly, still may she turn her back upon us. As from time immemorial, she has done upon the Swiss in the mountains. What more worthy people, whose every alpine gap yawns with tradition, and is stocked with noble story, yet the perverse and scornful one will have none of it. And the sons of patriots are left with the clock that turns the mill, and the sudden cuckoo, with difficulty restrained in its box. Everyone admits that Wells took this moment in the script and came up with the cuckoo clock speech. It would seem to have a clear antecedent in the James McNeil Whistler lecture, how Wells may have come across it, we don't know. But certainly his contribution in that regard would become part of this growing legacy where the belief that Wells had a lot more to do uh, with, the, with the film than he really did. And one of the great and funny aspects of reading about the making of the film is how Corda is essentially forced to try and track Wells all through Europe um, because he's staying in hotels and sending the bills to Corda's organization. He's not showing up. When he does show up, he doesn't want to do what he's supposed to do. And it's part of the great aspect of the film that this roguish kind of uh, charm, this demagogic, mischievous, egotistical personality, as Rob White wrote, is is the man himself. You know, it's it's the card that Marlon Brando would 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 crib from later in his career, starting with Apocalypse Now, who pulled the same sort of games and contributed the same sort of problems and mischief to an already troubled production and would um, contribute to this legend that Wells would contribute to and that Wells biographers would contribute to. One of the things that you might have heard me talk about on the podcast is this idea of things that people want to think versus the evidence that would lend them to think something else to the eyes and the ears of any rational person. There's many examples of this in our contemporary society. There's a lot of examples of this on the internet. But in Wells, you sort of have an er example of this. Um, as Drazen writes, this passage, that speech, the cuckoo clock speech, became a departure point for subsequent Wells biographers often used to support the familiar image of the errant genius that the world wanted Wells to play. That says it better than I possibly could. And in Wells' conversations with Peter Bogdanovich later in his life, he would alternately take and then replace the credit appropriately on Carol Reed. He tells Bogdanovich it's, it was Carol's picture. But I mean, even the way that he says that, it's sort of as if he's deigning to give credit where credit is due. And then to wrap it up, 
the brilliant final scene is still so starkly brilliant. And the use of the zither, the unexpectedness of the length of the shot, um, it's all part of the brilliance, the bravura of this filmmaking. What time is it? Holly Martin's and Calloway are getting into a Jeep after Harry's real funeral, because now Harry is actually I'll dead. I'll have to step on it if you're going to catch that plane. And they drive up. Calloway, can't you do something about Anna? I'll do what I can, if she'll let me. Now, the only false note I have with this otherwise incredibly brilliant scene is it's dubbed. Um, they're shooting this dialogue portion of this scene probably if she let me on a studio soundstage wait a minute let me out the well, zither not much time fits this emotional unconscious leave moment better Please. than any other thing you could imagine be sensible martins haven't got a sensible name calloway Cemetery Boulevard. As Calloway drives away. It's one of the most famous shots in film history, appropriately so. And it so embodies that grand green John Le Carre tortured, satisfying, unsatisfying ending. has tension for such a simple lockdown shot because the camera is not moving as she approaches and the tension is is she going to acknowledge Holly Martins who in her eyes is the agent of death for her beloved Harry Lyme because she herself doesn't want to know things about Harry Lyme in the way the public doesn't really want to know things about Orson Welles and it's so strong in her that she just walks right by him and then he lights a cigarette and the theme comes to an end it's brilliant i really hope you check out the third man and appreciate it as much as i did there's a lot more i could have talked about in relation to the film but i wanted to keep this relatively short so i hope you enjoy it and I want to thank you, as ever, for supporting and listening to the podcast. And I'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Casting Crew Podcast. Mm-hmm.